Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Before we get to this week's program, a quick plea for your help in spreading the word about the show. Please tell a friend or help us in the most effective way I know of to market a podcast. Give us a five-star rating and leave us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, as it's called now, or wherever you download the show. Thanks in advance. This week, Nancy Rubens taped live at the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University in Columbus. Rubens is included in Gray Matters, an exhibition that opens this Friday, May 19th, at the Wexner. The show, curated by Michael Goodson, features the work of 37 contemporary women artists who have worked in Grisaille. It is on view through July 30th. The exhibition includes work by lots of Past Man podcast guests, such as Carol Beauvais, Via Selmans, Micheline Thomas, Amy Silman, and Lorna Simpson. We'll have links to all of those shows and more on manpodcast.com. Nancy Rubin's often monumental sculpture amalgamates industrially produced objects into strikingly light, sometimes lyrical objects. Her enormous drawings that built up graphite on single sheets of paper, often installed across multiple walls, are simultaneously minimal and Baroque. She's had solo exhibitions at museums such as the MCA San Diego and the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and her public and institutional commissions include the University of Texas in Austin, MCASD, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles, the Albright Knox in Buffalo, and the University Paris Diderot in France. Nancy Rubens taped live at the Wexner after the break. From Washington, D.C. and America's first modern art museum come Manet, Degas, and Cezanne, Van Gogh, Gauguin, Bernard and Matisse, along with Picasso, Brock, Miro, and Kandinsky. A modern vision, European masterworks from the Phillips Collection at the Kimball Art Museum through August 13th. Plan your visit at KimballArt.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents the final weeks of Adios Utopia, Dreams and Deceptions in Cuban Art since 1950 a historic look at how Cuba's revolutionary aspirations shaped 65 years of Cuban art. The exhibition features over 100 of the most important works of painting, graphic design, photography, and more from Cuban artists and designers. On view through May 21st at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org slash adios for more. Join us at the Getty to explore the visual, verbal, and sonic experiments of the concrete poetry movement in the exhibition Concrete Poetry, Words and Sounds in Graphic Space. Using visual patterns of words or letters and other typographical devices, the shape of these poems convey as much or more than the words themselves. With works from contemporary poets and artists such as Augusto de Campos and Ian Hamilton Finlay, Concrete Poetry, Words and Sounds in Graphic Space is on view now through July 30th. Visit getty.edu to plan your visit. On view now, SF MoMA presents Matisse Diebenkorn, a story of artistic inspiration. Over the course of four decades, California painter Richard Diebenkorn was deeply influenced by Henri Matisse while forging a style entirely his own. The exhibition reveals how much the two painters share in their use of lush, vibrant, joyful color, attentiveness to structure and composition, choice of subject matter, and the richly layered surfaces of their canvases. See their art side by side for the first time and encounter a surprising new view of two of the 20th century's most extraordinary painters. Matisse Diebenkorn is on view through May 29th at SFMOMA. Get tickets at sfmoma.org. 
Nancy Rubens. Welcome to the Wexner and welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. How do you do? We're going to start with drawings, enormous gravity-defying graphite things that give drawing and pencil on paper, graphite on paper, the presence and feel of sculpture. For you, is there a relationship between drawing and sculpture? There must be, but it's nothing that I'm really conscious of when I'm making them. Sometimes when I look at the sculptures and I see a shadow on the ground that the sculpture casts, I go, oh yeah, there's the drawing in it. That's where, that's it. But other than that, I don't really think of the other when I'm making one. When I'm making the drawings, I have this wonderful paper I get from Arches. It's nice, heavy watercolor paper. And I have, I get literally thousands of pencils that I get from Generals. It's a Generals Carpenter's pencil. It's a flat pencil that's like a half an inch wide. And you can sharpen it with a utility knife. And I put the paper on the floor and I draw on the floor. I can get a lot of pressure on the pencil on the floor, putting my weight onto it. And what I really love about making those drawings is they register every mark in the moment and other elements in the moment, like if there's a piece of crud on the floor or if the pencil breaks and the graphite goes under the paper, I can get these nice lumpy things uh, embossed in the paper, or if the dog runs through, or if there's some leaves that are on the floor that fly under the paper, or some sticks, or whatever, whatever kind of crud on the floor under the paper, I can get a register of that moment. And what I love about the drawings is that I kind of think in a way, I think a lot about geology when I'm making them and tectonic plates and stuff like that and big things moving around. And I also, what I love about the drawings is that it's just a lousy piece of paper and a pencil, but I'm able through making marks over marks over marks, this very weird depth evolves and it can, it's almost like looking at the night sky. I, I, I almost think I could put my arm deep into it and it could go on forever because a very strange depth happens with all these marks when they're layered on top of each other. And you can never ever see the drawing all at once because when you look at it from one point of view, the light's falling on a certain way and you're at one angle and you're seeing the light refracting off all the marks and you're seeing a particular thing, and then you move a couple more feet to the left or the right or somewhere else in the room, and what you see on the surface of the drawing is completely different. So I really love that about the drawing, that it embraces these funny contradictions of it being very dense and very large and very deep, but really just a lousy piece of paper and some pencil. Do you think of your drawings practice as being separate from the sculpture practice? Do you work I on I don't even think about it. Do you work on drawings on the same days you work on sculptures no. or do you separate those days? Those are different days. So why did you separate them? Because they both Just, take so much work. <laughs> <laughs> They're physical in different ways. You couldn't ways? do the both in the same day. <laughs> One of the things they share in common is that scale is important. Yeah. That enormity is important. Yeah. 
you know, was that a decision you made early on that 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 was something that was crucial to the work, or did it happen over the years of doing it? It happened over the years, but it was a necessity for the work. With the drawings, I was really thinking about what it, it, part of how these drawings evolved is I was trying to figure out what is a drawing. You know, when I first was a student at Maryland Institute, and prior to that I, I went to a college in Nashville for two years, I did a lot of figure drawing, like, you know, tens of, well, maybe hundreds of hours of figure drawing. Yes, hundreds of hours. And I can draw a figure pretty good. And I kind of studied drawing in that way. And I first started making these drawings when I moved to California to go to graduate school. I went to graduate school in Northern California at Davis, and I went there purposely to study with a particular group of artists who were teaching at UC Davis at that time, the funk, Northern California funk movement. And I had gotten a waitress job that summer. I'd never been to California. It was all quite startling to me. And I had gotten a waitress job in this little village in the middle of the state called Morro Bay. And outside of Morro Bay, there is this big lump of a rock in the water. And it was a boring waitress job, so I'd stare out the window for hours on end looking at this rock. And it turns out it was a volcanic rock. And I was really fascinated that this lump, this big rock in the water, the small island, really one day was a fluid blob of, of molten magma coming out of the ground. And it became this rock. So. I decided, I was really fascinated by that, so I decided when I got to graduate school at Davis, I was going to start building sculptures that that enigmatic, molten, now not molten blob that was so evocative to me, what, it, what excited, you know, what, how it excited me inside. So I started making these small drawings that were about three to four inches big about that, that thing that I was thinking about. And I got to graduate school and I started building these blobs. And I was thinking about, you know, I'd never seen uh, adobe before, so I was mixing clay with concrete and straw. And I made these things that were like 2,700 pounds. And they were not very interesting sculptures. And I threw my back out when I built them. Can I interrupt really quick? Was this in a studio or was this in your apartment in the Mission District? Uh, this was in graduate school this was in when the you were studio. Still in school. Mm -hmm. And I realized that they were terrible sculptures and I needed to go back to those drawings because there was something enigmatic about those. So that's when I started really focusing on the drawing and developing that scale. And then once I started making them, I thought, well, what are these? I was making them on the floor. Are they puddles on the floor? Are they things to go on the wall? And I wasn't satisfied with either of those directions. So I started like hanging them over a rope or building an A-frame structure to flop them over. I didn't, are they drawings, are they paintings, are they things on, I didn't know what they were, so I wasn't really sure. So in my mind, I was trying to break the boundary of what a drawing was and then examine that. Do you draw a picture of a bottle or do you draw something else? Or do you use the pencil and paper to do something else? And so. Once I started thinking about that, I started thinking about the corner of the room, the ceiling of the room, the floor of the room. Where does the drawing live? And 
it can live anywhere, really. Can you pile it on top of a pile of hot water heaters? Yes. And once I figured out that they were reservoirs for energy, I realized that you don't have to see them all the time. You can just stack them on top of each other and have the knowledge that they exist and that that energy is stacked in there. So it became kind of a conceptual thing, not that I'm but you knew that that energy was piled on there, and you had a, a sense of that presence. So is that what you were asking? Yeah, well, I mean, that's interesting. So it sounds like the scale of the sculpture comes out of the scale of the drawings, which is not usually the way it works. I think so. Did you ever make small sculptures? Like, I, I, I went through a lot of It's very hard for me to make small things. I, I, I can't, but <laughs> I really have to try hard. I'm serious. So when you moved to San Francisco after grad school, you rented a place in the mission and, and you started making things. And one of the things you made was, and now I'm going to describe it horribly, we'll have an image on manpodcast.com, was a kind of flexible concrete wall that had rebar at its core and had a plywood form on one side and signs of making on the other, kind of big brushy handsy mm -hmm. movements on the other. Mm -hmm. Really cool thing. This is a you know early seventies. Mm -hmm. What did you get out of making that piece? Well, the great thing was is I could push them and they would waver back and forth. The actual thing yeah, when it was the dried and thing. finished. Would, it, when it was set up so and like, finished. Bleh, bleh. Yeah, not bleh, bleh, but woo, woo, oh, wow. and these and I thought, whoa, I got that concrete to be flexible and it wasn't cracking. It was just this really flexible thing, and the reason I figured that out was one night when I was in San Francisco, my neighbors and I, was late at night, we were drinking a beer. They were picking up their mother at the airport that day and I was dropping off my mother the next day, something about our mothers, and we were up late talking about our mothers. And I looked up and the lamp in my studio, I had a big cast concrete building with a 12-foot ceiling, and the lamp started swaying and having grown up on the East Coast, I never experienced an earthquake. And I saw my big, solid, big concrete building go whoop, and the wall just moved like a wave. And I thought, holy moly, I had no clue that concrete, that big, rigid, hard building, in the right circumstance can behave in a fluid way like water. So I started rethinking, I started thinking about that concrete and I started building these very thin walls. And what I loved about the thin walls is that I could put up the plywood, put some expanded metal and rebar, and slide the cement up with my hand. And so all the marks of my hand would be registered on one side, and all the little bits that the residue fell down to the bottom became this fabulous anchor for the work on the bottom. And then I could pop off the plywood wall that I had originally pressed it against, and the residue, the marks of the plywood became there, came there. So similar to the drawings, they registered the moment for me. And it also embraced this weird contradiction, that this thing that one would assume to be rigid and hard and inflexible was actually extraordinarily flexible. Was there in your mind some way of a, a viewer could experience that flexibility of the piece? No, it was just for it me was to just know. For you. Yeah. Do any of those survive? No, they were all made just on, you know, there were many, many, many pieces I made for many years that if I was concerned about 
saving them, I never would have been able to have built them. So I decided I would give up. And also, it was, again, questioning the ideas, what is a sculpture? What is an object? What is a work of art? Is it something that is precious and it has to be in a frame and you have to save it forever? Or is it something that you can build and it can move you through a time? Because I see the work as tools, as something to get me through a thought process to help me figure something out, to answer some questions, or maybe more than answer questions, to raise more questions. So at that time, it was worth it to me to be able to experiment with these materials, build this thing, and document it, and not worry about it becoming a permanent thing. So help me on timeline. Are you already making big graphite drawings before you make this concrete piece? Or yes. Are you really Yes. So do you think that the big graphite drawings and their fluidity and their malleability inform the concrete piece at all? Not consciously, mm. by any means, but it all came out of the same person, so it must have. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you wish you still had any of those concrete pieces? Do you no. wish any of them had made it? No. You got what you needed out of them yeah. and you were done? Yeah. So what in those pieces do you think survives into the work now, if anything? Oh, everything I learned from them. I mean, the work continues to have a continuum and a flexibility and the ability to continuously change in a funny way. There are pieces, for instance, there's a piece called Table and Airplane Parts that lives in France. And I finally installed it, I think we installed it for the seventh time or the eighth time and it lives permanently now in a, what was this wonderful turn of the century. The French built all these wonderful little train stations in the country. And I have this imagination of people going there with their paints and going to the field and getting out in the train station and, you know, going out to paint. And a lot of these villages were farm villages and very few people live there now. And the train stations are no longer functioning. There's trees going through the tracks. And they're small buildings, and they're beautifully made with tile that's made over the leg, and the wood is these nice block ends and perfectly proportioned. And some of the frock in Dijon is now converting some of these stations into these beautiful little art places. Frocks so, are the regional art museums mm -hmm, in France. Mm -hmm. So we installed cable and airplane parts permanently there. Cable and airplane parts I originally built with an assistant in my garage studio in Topanga in 1990. And then in 1992, I showed it in a gallery at Burnett Miller's Gallery in New York. And we tried to take it apart in chunks and make a map in, in how-to drawings. And that was just an absurd thing to do. And we rebuilt it in Burnett's Gallery. And I realized, you know, there's no reason to try to check to save this as it was. The gallery's different, we should just continue. So every time that piece was built, rebuilt in Dijon, at the Mudam in Luxembourg, at the, wherever it was reinstalled, it became, it was the same sculpture, but it was a different sculpture. And I'll tell you kind of what I was thinking about with that. Well, a lot of things, but one of the things is, years ago, maybe 1980, when I was still living in New York, I did a talk at a, at a university in, in Montreal, I think Concordia, I think was the school. And they had a museum there, and there was a show of 
Russian work from the turn of the century. It was a collection of a man of an American who was, who, no, a man who was the driver for the American ambassador to Russia at that time. And he was friends with Malevich and all these folks and had this lovely collection, very small work. And there was in a tureen, in a little glass you know, case, a small sculpture about this tall. And it kind of reminded me of Klaus Oldenburg in a funny way. It looked very funky. It kind of reminded me of that Picasso with a piece of pie and the pie thing, this kind of balancing thing. And you see the sculpture there, and it's painted. And then you see it over the years. Mm -hmm. And every time it was found, it would be broken. And then somebody glue it back together. And every time it was glued back together, it was in a different configuration. The conservators were always re you know, they didn't have a, you know, image to refer. I thought, wow, how weird. Look, there's five or six different configurations of that same sculpture, but it's the same damn sculpture. Mm. It didn't matter if it was upside down or things were backwards. It was the same work, and that really was reassuring to me to see. One of the things it occurs to me might make it from those early concrete pieces mm -hmm. in, into the current work is the idea of, of structural integrity or not. Oh, yeah, that's important. And, you know, so, of course, they're, they're the tension wires that hold a number yeah. of the, the, the large sculptures together. There is within those pieces the possibility that something could go wrong mm -hmm. and that it could all come crumbling down. Mm -hmm. In some of the pieces, you sometimes think of that, you know, when you're looking mm -hmm. up, up at it. Is, is that tension, both structural and not, you know, mm -hmm. human tension, important or incidental? Oh, it's super important. It's really important to me that you see this thing standing there and you kind of marvel that it is standing over your head, but yet everything is exposed. The structural integrity is completely, the structure, mm. the elements that keep it existent are completely exposed. So you see all the cables that are keeping each element in place. You're understanding that tensegrity principle, you know, of tension, and, and uh, that's really, really important to me. That's really important. When did that become important? Always. It became important when I was a freshman in college, and I first started mucking about with clay. And everybody at that time was on the potter's wheel. And I had a friend who was a fabulous mm. potter. And I would sit by her. I was a terrible potter. And I knew it, but I loved working on the potter's wheel to see what the lump of clay would do, see what I could do with it, and then see what, hap what made it fall down. And that, was, that really helped me understand physics. You know, it was mm. just a, a matter of physics and understanding what made things work and what made things not work. So it's interesting that you talked about how in the early work, such as the concrete pieces or, or in a piece like Mud Slip Army Surplus Canvas and Used Cups from Coffee Machine, mm -hmm. which is this planar thing of all of those components that's kind of wavy gravy. Mm -hmm. We'll have an image of that on manpodcast.com too. That those works, you're okay with their impermanence, and mm -hmm. that impermanence was kind of at the root of the decision not to do them, and that over time, structural integrity, which has at its heart the idea of permanence, became mm -hmm. important to the work. Mm -hmm. Was there 
was that a gradual transition? Do you know what led you into that transition? Structural integrity was important in the early work, but it was not necessary. I wasn't interested in saving the work. For instance, trailers and hot water heaters, you see it in that, but that was a temporary work, you know, and, and it, there was no way for me to save that work or to keep it. So permanence and structural integrity were just never related? Not necessarily, mm. no. Which is the exact opposite of how, say, a builder would think. Well, I'm not a builder. Right, exactly. <laughs> so in a number of these early works, a little later on, the work takes on a shape that kind of hovers between a tornado or an atomic or nuclear cloud, a mushroom cloud. Is one of those associations more important to you than the other, or is kind of the elision between the two the whole thing? I was most interested in the precariousness of it. That of the was actual world's structure? Apart. Yeah, that was world's part that you're referring yeah. to, and probably Big Urn was the pre precursor to, to uh, world's apart. I'll go back to Big Urn. Prior to Big Urn, I was building uh, very thin walls made out of appliances that I stacked. And this is right after the thin concrete walls. I figured I could build two layers of the concrete in the appliances a day before the, so that the concrete could keep the appliances up. It would set up and I'd do two more layers. And I, I could build a wall 45 feet long and 12 feet tall and push it and that too would waver like those concrete walls. And I started looking at that. I thought, well, that's nice, but you know, I'd really, I, I want to get more of an eccentric shape. I'd like to start playing around with a cantilevering form. So I started thinking back to the old ceramic days. I started getting, I got a blob of concrete on the floor and I got strings of rebar and planted it in the blob of concrete and started like a, like a basket as the appliances went. I would do the rebar, horizontal rebar, and I could make this eccentric and a precarious form that I called Big Urn. And I really loved seeing this skinny little bottom holding up this big yurt of a blob of stuff. And it was only as thick as an appliance, as a toaster, an iron, or whatever an appl electric appliance would be. So I brought that into the larger form in, in Washington, D.C. with Worlds Apart. I wasn't really thinking of it as an image of a thing. You mean like a tornado or an atomic Yeah, cloud? I just wanted to have that skinny little bottom and this big undulating sexy blob coming off the top of it. But at some point in building it or in having made it, you must have realized, oh, tornadic, oh, atomic cloud. I thought vortex. Yeah, so there's a, there's a you know... But a vortex is a thing in nature that is in all kinds of stuff. But all of Not these, all of these it's things... It's in your water. Yeah, you know? or dust bunnies yeah. or whatever. Yeah. All of these things have a certain violence, natural or not, within them. Did you think of that? Do you think of no. that? Was that important? No, no, I didn't. I don't. I mean, it's there... But it's not something I need to put in it because it's, it's so big. Anything big is kind of threatening, you know? Buildings are nice because we don't see the stuff inside them. You know, the skin, there's skin on them, yeah. you know? My guest is Nancy Rubens. We'll be right back after a break. 
The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents the West Coast premiere of Marissa Mertz, The Sky is a Great Space, following its celebrated run at the Met in New York. Bringing together five decades of work, the exhibition explores the prodigious talent and influence of the Italian painter, sculptor, and installation artist, Marisa Mertz. Co-organized by the Hammer and the Met, this first U.S. retrospective exhibition of Mertz's work is on view June 4th through August 20th at the Hammer Museum. Also on view this season, Living Apart Together, featuring recent acquisitions from the Hammer Contemporary Collection, including Dato Moriyama. Details online at hammer.ucla.edu. The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents the world premiere of Gray Matters, May 20th through July 30th. A multifaceted survey organized by the Wex's Senior Curator of Exhibitions, Michael Goodson, the show features 37 contemporary women artists working in shades of gray and marks the midpoint of a year in which the center's entire exhibition program consists solely of women. Through over 50 works, artists including Via Selmans, Ronnie Horn, Nancy Rubens, Arlene Sheckett, Lorna Simpson, and Kara Walker reveal the vibrancy as well as the expressive power in the spectrum between and including black and white. For more information, go to wexarts.org. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Nina Chanel Abney Royal Flush, the first solo exhibition in a museum for Abney, a 34-year-old artist from Chicago, who is identified by Vanity Fair magazine as one of the many artists championing the Black Lives Matter movement. The exhibition is a 10-year survey of about 30 of the artist's paintings, watercolors, and collages. Through her monumental paintings, Abney gives viewers the chance to take part in a meaningful conversation about issues of racial violence and social justice. She uses bold shapes and colors and the language of today's digital and celebrity cultures to take on controversial topics. She confronts those parts of human nature that seem easiest to ignore, prejudice, stereotypes, and biases. She has said that her work is, quote, easy to swallow, hard to digest. On view February 16th through July 16th at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu slash abney. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents Andrea Chung, You Broke the Ocean in Half to Be Here at its downtown location from May 19th through August 20th. For her first solo museum exhibition, artist Andrea Chung presents a new immersive installation together with selected prints and collages that explore legacies of colonialism and migration in the Caribbean. For more information, visit mcasd.org. And now back to my conversation with Nancy Rubens. So we're talking about pieces made from electric appliances. Those are, you know, things that have a finite lifespan. Paper cups, finite lifespan. As your career went on, you pivoted away from making work out of, out of short-lived consumables, mm -hmm. if you will, toward more durable industrial stuff. Mm -hmm. Airplane parts, mm -hmm. canoes. Mm -hmm. Why? I moved to California, and I would take trips to uh, the town of Mojave, out in the desert? Yeah. And I was looking for a new material because I kind of done a lot of pieces with these little electric appliances and I didn't, I kind of had worked through it. And I saw a field of airplane parts. I thought, wow, that, look at those things. They're gorgeous. They were just parts of airplanes. Maybe but, we should just quickly explain why there were airplane parts all over the desert. Uh, beca <laughs> uh, because this is, the desert's very dry 
and there are, there are a lot of airfields there, and the government stores a lot of airplanes there, yeah. and also parts are, are stored there. And I, I tried to buy these parts, and it took about three years. Nobody would sell them to me. Oh, in three years, we can, but the government, they were being saved for certain things. And people connected me with this gentleman, Mr. Huffman. And Mr. Huffman had mountains of this stuff, and he would sell it to me for 10 cents a pound at the time. That was aluminum, what aluminum was when you melted it down. Mm. And they were just beautiful shapes. I had no clue what they were used for or what they were, but I just started hoarding the stuff and looking at the shapes and started working with that. The first piece I did with those airplane parts was Topanga tree and airplane parts. And I worked around the negative space of this uh, large oak tree on my property and built with the airplane parts. Was there anything about them being from a plane or from industrial materials or process that was important? Well, they were beautiful. And I never could have made those things. The, the materials were just exotic to me. Sometimes I get titanium. The rivets were beautiful. They looked like things that you might find at the bottom of the ocean. They were really exotic and, and evocative to me, and that I had no clue what they were used for was interesting to me. And I, I was attracted to them because of that. There's a certain poetry or romanticism. So, so when one sees one, any, any of the sculptures with airplane parts, they're recognizable as airplane parts. Mm -hmm. When we think of airplanes, we think of things going up and flying away. Mm -hmm. Were you at all interested in the romanticism of constraining things that we know fly away? It wasn't part of my thought process. I think that, that people bring that to the work when they see it after it's done. But I was really seeing these things kind of as organic elements in a funny way and thinking of them in an organic way. Rather than as airplane parts. Yeah. You found airplane parts, canoes I guess you've both made and had fabricated. No, I, 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 I found them and uh, yes, I did have some fabricated for the piece at Las Vegas because I needed brightly colored boats. That was something that they really wanted and I had been using uh, some plastic kayaks prior to that for the piece at Lincoln Center and the piece people in Las Vegas love the, that bright vulgar color. And they had some problems, issues with their buildings, and that it was a huge complex, a 70-acre complex called City Center, and they had all these curved buildings, Raphael Vinole, Caesar Palais, and guess what happens when glass is curved in the desert? It's like a magnifying glass when you're a kid oh, and yeah. you burn leaves. So... They developed what was called solar convergence. It got up to 550 degrees. Whoa, that's hot. Yeah. So I had to really rethink. <laughs> so I found some folks that were willing to, that could build these canoes for me and give me uh. these colors that were painted on and, and not painted, they were baked on at a temperature that was higher than the solar convergence. And So it, were the canoes like the airplane parts in the sense that 
you were attracted to the form rather than yeah. to the thing? I, we had a canoe on our property, and I said to my husband... You had a canoe in a canyon? Well, my husband had bought it because he was thinking of it for a work of his. Huh. I said, whoa, look at that canoe. It looks... God, that looks like one of my airplane parts. And he said, goofus, <laughs> it's made by Grumman. And I Air, thought, a, a military contractor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then I got, ah, I got it. You, you know, the ribs, the struts, the aluminum skin, everything just kind of popped in. I thought, God, those things are gorgeous. And they're perfectly sleek pod. So then I just started hoarding airplane, uh, the uh, canoes. And so often the canoes, such as in the piece at the Albright, Knox, and Buffalo, are just silver. And you mentioned the color ones. Is, is that an important difference for you and why? After doing the piece in Las Vegas, I didn't want to muck with color for a while. I was just, I wanted to stay far away from it. And also, uh, when doing the piece in Las Vegas, I had all these monochrome canoes that I collected from Northern California from a boat, a canoe rental place. And they were gorgeous. They had really been used and reused and really daylights used out of them and they were welded and re-welded. I couldn't believe that they actually sent people out in the water in these canoes, but they were beautiful. And one day when we were in Las Vegas, it rained, and those aluminum, those monochrome canoes, the, the used ones, stood out to be particularly beautiful to me. Mm. And I thought, mm, that's what I'm going to do. The next work, I'm going to get rid of all that vulgar color, and I want to just go for with those beautiful monochrome canoes because there was such a subtlety in their surface. And when they got wet, they were beautiful and in the sun. And each one had a different story and a different history. In a funny way, the surfaces reminded me of the drawings a little bit because every rock that they went over in, went over in the river had this kind of beautiful surface. So I had a hankering to do that. So that's when the monochrome series evolved. You like the monochrome so much that you put it in a lot of the titles. So we have monochrome for Austin, monochrome for Paris, stainless steel, aluminum, monochrome one. Yeah. Um, sometimes you can tell what artists think are important by, <laughs> by what they call the work. That one of the canoe pieces that's made entirely out of stainless is, is the one at the Albright. Aluminum. Aluminum, sorry. At the Albright, which is called Built to Live Anywhere at Home Here. It's 2010-11 piece. Boy, there's a temptation to seeing that really tense, tight canoe piece in front of an art museum in Buffalo and to think about Niagara Falls being 40 or 50 miles away. I mean, <laughs> the importance of Niagara to the place. Did that, either as a positive or a negative, enter Anytime into Anytime you put a, a, a work that has those canoe elements, the sun is behind the one that's in Paris. Everyone says, oh, did you build that because of the sun? Nope. <laughs> but there's always, a body, there's always a body of water near or absent. In Las Vegas, there is no water. Oh, is it? You know, you can always make an association. People like, love making personal associations where they are the center of the universe and their community is, and your work helps talk about their place and them. And I go, yes, absolutely. It's all about you. <laughs> so, so there's a way to embrace it and a way to shrug at it. Yeah. <laughs> As you've changed the things that the sculptures are made out of, airplane parts, canoes, kids' toys, whatever the thing is, you could have at each point decided, I'm done with attention wires. 
I've, I've played with tension wires for a while. Maybe I'll move on from that. Why, why did you decide to keep them and make them fundamental to the work? I love them. I love them. To me, that's the essence of the work, really. The other stuff is kind of peripheral. It's the most interesting part for me to look at. And it, it's always a surprise where they need to be. How so? Well, it, 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 again, it goes back to structural integrity. So all of a sudden, there's a wad of wire around a certain place because that's the strongest place that everything else is pulled back to. And so these linear things start happening. And in a funny way, it becomes a drawing in space that as you're working with these elements, that's the continuity that keeps everything going in there. And it makes me think about things in outer space and energy and how things are connected and cells. And it really makes me, it has bigger references to me than, than just structure. Did you have to learn engineering at some level to begin playing <laughs> with that stuff? I mean, it's difficult to my feeble. It, <laughs> I call it seat of the pants engineering. Um, <laughs> sure, you, clients love to hear that. You know, <laughs> it, it, after you throw a pot and you see it fall down, you get a sense of what allows something not to fall down. So after you work with a certain, after you stack appliances and concrete, you know how dry the concrete has to be or how wet it is, you know, to live, to be there. So now, I, I absolutely, I work with an engineer. I have a fabulous engineer. If you ever go to LAX, the theme building is the only building that is, is earthquake and structurally sound. He completely re-earthquake, mm. earthquake that funny George Jetson looking yeah, building. Yeah. Everything else at the airport will pancake. That building, sound. So you mostly fly out of Burbank. <laughs> Try to. <laughs> so, you know, there's an element of it that me and my crew, my engineer has confidence and he can run the numbers on what we're doing. And then there's a part of it where we go, well, we want the steel to be here, and we think it should be this big, and it's going to go this direction. And he'll say to us, well, the steel needs to be this thick, and the welds need to be these kinds of welds. And, you know, he calls out things so that it can be safe living overhead in a public place mm. and deal with the wind and earthquakes and the snow and the rain and everything else. But what? certainly there have been many large pieces that are living permanently that I did not use this engineer with, work with this wonderful engineer, and they're doing just fine. But I'm happy I have them going into the future. <laughs> <laughs> you have done a number of more or less permanent installations at museums. By more or less, I mean in the existential, what really is ever permanent kind mm -hmm. of way, such as Pleasure Point in mm -hmm. San Diego mm -hmm. at the MCA San Diego, which I think is one of the three or four great permanent pieces at any American museum, airplane paint uh, parts at, uh, at MOCA. W when you're doing a piece that you know is going to be in a particularly public place for a particularly long period of time, that it serves as a pivot between an institution and its public or a city and a public, do you think about what to do or how to make or what to do with that piece differently than you think of a piece that goes to a private collection or somewhere else? No. No difference? No. 
you know, you can be afforded a certain scale sometimes, but in private collections, you can be afforded that scale also. No, no different. In lots of interviews, you've referenced Abex painters and kind yeah. of painters of yeah. that period of, yeah. of being important to you. Yeah. And I can find references to Abex in the work going way back. The explosion outward, density, sculptural objects being used in a vaguely painterly way, or maybe really painterly way, and on and on. But so I've heard you reference three different artists over and over again, and questioners often let you get off the hook without asking you okay. specifically what about those yeah, painters yeah. were important yeah. to you. So um, first up, uh, Philip Guston. Oh. Why is or was he important to you? Oh, I love <laughs> Philip Guston. I love the later paintings, but I love the early Expressionist paintings too. When I was doing the series with uh, the Our Friend Fluid Metal series with the little animals from the little aluminum mm -hmm. uh, toys from playgrounds that were being ripped out, and I got them in the cusp of being remelted. And those were made from the melted down airplanes after World War II when the men came back and they wanted to make babies, and so they turned that aluminum into this. And when I got them, they were just getting ready to be melted again. I really see Philip Guston's, those little wiggly marks. I go, whoa, that's a cross between those early Philip Guston's and de Kooning. And it seemed like uh, I was building a painting in space of these little wiggly kind of mm. colored marks that were kind of wiggling out in space. So, Speaking of de Kooning. Yeah. He's another one of the three you often see. Yeah. I, I think of the three, the other one we'll talk about in a minute is, is Mata. But of, the, of, of Mata, de Kooning, and Gustin, the one that maybe surprised me the most is de Kooning. So what about de Kooning clicked? And I saw a wonderful thing a couple weekends ago. I always loved the, de Kooning did very few sculptures. But he and did the clam, yeah, and the clam diggers. Yeah. And I've always loved those pieces. And I o I've only seen two bronze. And I went to the Nasher uh, Sculpture Museum. In Dallas. In Dallas a couple weekends ago. And we were I was going through, and the curator was taking me around. And there is a fabulous de Kooning there of the clam diggers. But it's a plaster. Hmm. And I said, he did these in plaster? And she said, no. He did them in very wet clay. Hmm. He loved using wet, not plasticine clay, water clay, wet clay, yes, wet clay. And she said, and then he had, they were made in plaster so he could see what they'd look like in bronze. He said, but when he made them in wet clay, and she had the good fortune to meet his assistant at that time, and he told her that sometimes they would come into the studio in the morning from the day before, and the clay was so wet, a foot would fall or a hand would fall and be in the ground. The clay would just kind of slip and slop and plop on the ground. And I thought, oh, that's so close to my heart. I just really... And then I thought, yeah, I, I get to Kooning somehow. The marks and the clay, it just, it just felt so familiar to me. Matter, I, 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 I think, really, I think a lot about Clifford Still. And for me, Clifford Still, it's, it's so physical, those paintings. He's kind of 
the layers, it goes back to geology and layers of, of stuff, kind of peeling off layers of stuff and exposing these layers. I love Clifford Still. Did you find Still early on? Yeah, well, when I was a student at Davis, and, and they, they, yeah, they were always so, uh, we could go in and just stare and stare and stare, and I love Clifford Still. It's long not been fashionable for artists to admit finding marvelousness in Clifford Still. So that's kind of cool. Why? I think he's been out of vogue for, oh, I mean, you know, if, you're, if you I are a New Still. Yorker, which you're not, your, your line through Abex runs through Pollock, and, and Pollock is, is, is your er male artist. How can you not love, of artist, course, dude. yeah. And, and, and the Pollock, Pollock's people so who obvious, love Pollock. Who and, needs to talk about that? Yeah, <laughs> but I think that's true about 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 still, right? I mean, he mixed his own paints. I think he ground his own pigments, and then he just palette knifed them into existence in a very in a, in a in a very physical way. Maybe kind of the way you. To me, those things are almost sculpture. Kind of like you you physical the drawings mm -hmm. into existence. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of the drawings, since I, I brought them up, mm -hmm. we've been talking about the materials that the sculptures are, are, are made out of, and I wanted to bring that back to the drawings in the sense that, is it of interest to you that in the drawings the graphite looks like it's metal? Looks like it's... It's more interesting to me that the graphite has this ability that has this... It, it, it's not so much that it looks like metal, but it has a density that seems to go on forever. And like Clifford Still, it has layers and layers and layers. So it's creating space for me in a funny way. Like when you look at the night sky and it goes on forever, you know, that, that's how the drawings appear to me. So maybe I said before that contradiction that it can embrace of just being so, just a skinny piece of paper. People, people refer to it as metal. I don't think of it that way, but I like that contradiction, that it appears to be something very dense. The surfaces of the drawings and the sculptures are really different. The sculptures are often, reflective's not the word, but, they, but light bounces off of them. Mm -hmm. Shiny's not the word, mm -hmm. but they, yeah. and, and, and the drawings kind of soak it up. Mm -hmm. is, is, is that, an interesting thing to play with for you, or are they such separate practices that that's not? The latter, mm. yep. You mentioned earlier going to MICA as an undergrad, mm -hmm. and one of your professors there was Salvatore Scarpita. Yes, yeah, Sal. So, Salvatore Scarpita is one of the, the under... Such under, really, under the radar, fabulous artist. You know, Wikipedia him, but in, in, in shorthand, he's kind of the proto-Matthew Barney, the guy who believed art and sculpture should be in motion and physical, and he had a race team, you know, like a race car team. His race cars were sculptures. Yeah, yeah. And One Leo Castelli, he'd have collection. Leo Castelli on the side of his race cars. And, so, so did you and go to Micah knowing he was there? No, I went to Micah, the ceramics teacher at the time, and then all the students would say to me, this guy Sal, he's the real deal. So I went and sat in on to a couple of classes, and how do you get into these classes? You gotta try hard. And you didn't have to try hard, you signed up, and Sal was just like a, such a, 
huge energy and such a brilliant man and he was like an opera singer. He had this presence and, you know, he was brilliant. And he had a foot in Italy and a foot in America and he was kind of the bridge of Art Povera and, you know, and he helped me understand Lucio Fontana and then Lee Montague. It was that kind of a bridge for me. Got it? Arte Povera to Libanico. No, Lucio Fontana. Oh, so you just meant that Scarpito was, I got you. Was the bridge of, of these artists in my mind. And hearing him talk about those really early rap canvases he did and seeing them and hearing about how, you know, he'd take them across uh, uh, to send them to Italy and custom said, so unwrap it. You know, <laughs> let's see the work. Or out of the, the, the loins of his being in World War II. And, you know, repairing the boo-boo, repairing the damage. You know, there was, there was a great tenderness in Sal's work and a transcendence in this movement, in the sleds and the race cars, something that the work would take you someplace. And I understood that. Did he activate the students around his work at all, whether it was the race team or the sleds or no, any of that? No, no. Uh, he I, knew I, about it. Yeah, and you know, I, I, I would go visit his studio, and over the years I saw Sal until not long before he died. I mean, we maintained a real friendship over the years. What are the things you're making sculptures out of uh, in the last year or two? I have been collecting and working with these kind of absurd animals cast out of bronze and aluminum and brass and stuff like that that I don't really know what they're used for. Sometimes maybe people put them in their yards. Maybe some of them are used for, you know, signs to sell barbecue, a big pig. You know what I mean? To sell like barbecue. Uh-huh. Really? Uh, mm-hmm. Wow. They're good. Yeah, they're, but they're really nice. But who? And they're really structurally sound because basically they're uh, cylinders and they're well made, so that I can I can use a stainless structure. But those cylinders are so beautifully built that from there my engineer can measure the thickness and how round they are and how big they are, so that again structural integrity. Figure out how far we can cantilever these elements connected to each other, and they are beautiful. I love working with them. So some of the animals are boars, alligators, stags. You know, Anything I can the... find, yeah. Horses, turtles, so what... hippos, oh, yeah, hip... yeah. giraffes. So what is the attraction of the animals? Why, the... Why animals? Well, they're animals. But they're just these goofy yard things. So you see them upside down, and then you see how they're made. You see the welds inside. You see the little pads on them. They're not really animals. They're metal things. <laughs> so, you know, you... And it's the first time I felt comfortable using such an overt figurative thing. That's what I was going to ask. I've about, always yeah. been... It's always given me the heebie-jeebies. And for some reason, I dove in... Full throttle, and I'm loving it. So why, why? I mean, I can come up with some art historical references yeah. for all of this, and I'll leave that alone for a moment. Yeah. But why does it give? Why do they give you the heebie-jeebies? Or what, why? Um, why the idea of using okay. something? Okay. So? I think everything is figurative. 
The chair is figurative because we have our butt and our back were shaped this way. That table's figurative, this bottle's figurative. Everything's figurative that we make, even if it's figurative of our ideas. So, so a canoe, that's really figurative. A mattress, that's really figurative. But these things are really figurative too, in that they're, they're easily identifiable figures. They're not abstract figures, a hot water heater, that's figurative. But those things are really uh, more or easier for me to work in an, ab in, in an abstract form because they are already abstracted. These things are very specific. However, they work. You know, I, 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 I think because you can turn them upside down and see their underbelly and see the hole in them that where the metal was poured and you see the welds so that it breaks the illusion of the figure and it becomes just a dumb piece of metal again. So I, I like it that, you, that it flips and flops the brain back and forth. And also, I keep thinking of the caves in France and the imaginings. You thought of that, too. I know you did. No, I thought of something else in France. What? Uh, Antoine Louis Barry. Those uh, 19th century sculptures he made of, you know, for 30 years of animals attacking other animals. Yeah. Which I, yeah. you know, when I first saw the images yeah. for this yeah. recent work you've yeah. made, yeah. I, knowing this was a stupid thing to do because it wasn't going to be there, but I went through them trying to find specific references to wow. specific wow. very yeah. 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 sculptures because yeah. it's really close. Yeah. I mean, you've yeah. got yeah. stags and yeah, yeah, I got it. Yeah, I kept, I keep kept thinking of grottos and landscapes and making something that was like a, a grotto that you could sit under, but it was these animals and these, these... And the turtles are so huge. There are turtles that weigh 870 pounds. They're just these huge cast-iron things. So I think made for goofy fountains. You know, they're kind of... Yeah, I, I've been really having enjoying working with them. You know, you're, you're, you're not 10 years into your career now. You're, you're 40 years into your career. Are yeah. you... Is it safer, or are you more willing to have viewers bring associations into objects like a boar or a turtle than you think you would have been a couple decades ago? Yeah, I think so. I don't know if it's safer, but I feel more confident in what I'm doing with it. So it's not so worrisome. Not worried because it's... It, it's you they're looking at, not a boar? Whereas in 1983, I, I know that they're looking at metal that was, I know that they're looking at metal that used to be uh, Coke cans, and I figured it out. Have you exhibited any of them yet? No. Do you know where they're going to be uh, In March of next year uh, in London at the Britannia Space Excursions. Oh, wow. Cool. Nancy Rubens, thanks so much. Thanks, y'all. Thank you, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.